You're listening to the Autism Weekly Podcast. Each week, we share community voices and bring light to stories that increase awareness, acceptance, equity, access, and inclusion. If you haven't already, subscribe to join the Autism Weekly family. I'm your host, Jeff Skibitsky. This week, we're joined by two board members from BABA, Black Applied Behavior and Analysts. Dr. Danielle Beal is a clinical psychologist whose dissertation research focused on resiliency factors in Black women who have survived trauma in their youth. She obtained her undergraduate degree at Cal State University Long Beach in child development and psychology with a minor in communicative disorders and went on to obtain a master's of arts in teaching deaf and hard of hearing students with an emphasis in applied behavior analysis. Our other guest is Camille Cami Williams. She's a black lesbian cisgender woman who holds the title board certified behavior analyst. Her work focuses on diversity, equity, and inclusion, social justice, autism, and exceptional needs services, mentorship, advocacy for ovarian cancer, and systematic self-love and self-care. Today, we will be talking about trauma-assured care and the need for support for black clinicians in the black families they service. Danielle, Cami, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Well, it's, it's my pleasure. And, and I, to be honest, I, I hope that I get educated through this process as much as our audience is able to have this conversation. But before we get started, I always want for everybody to really understand where our guests are coming from. And maybe we can start with Danielle and you can give us a little bit of your background and what brought you into the field of autism, but then also what really brought the interest with being able to emphasize some of the equity issues that, that are occurring within our field. Yeah, so um, I've been sharing kind of my introduction to this ABA space for some time and it just started with me wanting to work with children. Um, I think personally, um, I never had structure growing up and I always knew that it was important to me to work with children. I just didn't know what capacity. So I answered a call with, uh, to, to work with a little boy with autism. I didn't know what autism was. And within two weeks, I fell in love with what I was doing. The science made sense. The discipline made sense. The everything just kind of came together and it was, um, a structure that I needed for my life. I was a homeless uh, single parent. I was pregnant with my first child and kind of impending motherhood. And it just was something that made sense. I, I was good at it. Um, and so that's how I, I started in the field. But then as I was working, I lived in Long Beach, California at the time. Um, I was working specifically within the black and brown communities and very quickly started seeing how services were being offered differently, how supports looked differently. Because I had such an extensive um, experience with my own traumatic childhood, I was seeing kind of cycles and repetitions with the black and brown families that I was serving. And so that's always been a big part of my motivation and passion, but truly it was about survival. So each like accolade or um, promotion that I received was, was a matter of survival. So for instance, at one point I was supervising children in the school district and the board was starting to come together and mandate some of these processes. 
And so in order for me to keep my job at the school district, I needed a master's. So I accidentally went back to school and got a master's so that I could keep my job. Um, and then when I decided to go back for my doctorate degree, it was only because I wanted to bridge the gap between diagnosis and services. So we know that there's a long delay and there's a big gap, but it is so much different for black and brown families who don't have access to meaningful resources. So I wanted to bridge that gap. So I accidentally went back to school and got my doctorate degree as I was sitting in my first class um, statistics. I was looking around and I was surrounded by like 20 something year olds who were living in like their parents' basements. And here I am a business owner. I had a grown child. I had a new baby at home. And I was like, how did I end up here? I grew up in and out of foster care and I had a really like traumatic life story. And I'm like, how did I end up here? How did me, a black woman in America, end up married to my high school sweetheart with two beautiful children. I, you know, survived homelessness. I had survived so much. Why am I here? And so that shaped my dissertation. I wanted to explore factors between resiliency and falling victim to this very oppressed system. Um, as I was going through that process, I was met with really horrific discrimination and um, it was just, it was a horrible experience. And I started to become really angry um, that I was being treated very different than other people in my cohort. And I was, I was looking at this as I reflected on my career, I was, you know, mistreated and misunderstood and not really given opportunities that I was watching other people um, give and through that anger, it kind of shaped my purpose in the field and what I would disseminate for so long. I was quietly working in the trenches. And finally, I think through um, the conversations that were being had around George Floyd's murder and more specifically Breonna Taylor's murder, which really affected me, I was like, I have something to say too. And so since that time, I really started kind of working on the courage to tell my story and to courage to talk about my lived experiences and to really start to formulate what that looked like um, for dissemination. And so that's how I ended up here today. I appreciate the fact that, that you had the courage to, to take your passion and, and to start being able to explore ways to be able to share that and to empower others to be in the same position. Um, and when we get into kind of the idea of a trauma-assumed care, um, I hope to explore that both from the patient level, but also from the staff level. I think that both those things are super important for us to see. And it's from the idea of, you know, are we giving the wrong diagnoses based off pre-assumptions? Or yes. are we passing up on people, not yes. thinking that they have wonderful qualities because we have an assumption of how people should respond to specific uh, situations instead of really understanding the perspective and their life yeah. experience. Yeah, so. and that's exactly right. Two things that the first one is that like so much of what I was seeing was like people making assumptions about the way someone showed up without having real like knowledge. And then me realizing that this was specific to black women, right? Like there's so many similarities, but I found that out through my dissertation. And then the second thing is that we're not just talking about the children we're serving or the students we're serving. We're talking about clinicians because 
what I didn't realize was in my dissertation process, like six or seven of my participants were actually um, RBTs or BCBAs. They'd worked in the field. And when they talked about their harmful experiences, everything just kind of clicked. And so that's where I'm really showing up is it's not like we have to be looking at how employers are treating their staff and how these same issues are coming up with grown you know, with grown, with grown people. So that's, yes, I, I'm anxious to get into that and start. Absolutely. And Cami, I, I want to hear your story as well, because from the, from the DEI perspective mm -hmm. is that um, I think that a lot of uh, the industry within ABA has said, oh, well, we're, we're trying to bring about more practitioners. And I'd say is that what we failed at is bringing in industry leaders and that we haven't been able to kind of create that chain of having more CEOs, more yeah. people make strategic decisions. But tell me your background and how DEI became your focus so that we have a better understanding as we go into these conversations. Yeah, for sure. So uh, for me, um, my the first activist I ever knew was my father. So um, he was born and raised in Detroit. He was born in 1955. Um, he experienced the process of integration and was met with horrific, uh, just trauma, racial trauma. Um, I was born and raised in a suburb um, outside of Detroit. Um, and so my whole like lived experience K through 12 um, was like in this field of whiteness. But I think the thing that my generation in particular have, um, we had that kind of ability to, to be like the offspring of the generation that experienced integration. So we were the, we don't see color generation. So although on paper, looking at me and my classmates, you know, I, I you know, went to a really great school district. I got, you know, great education. It looked quote unquote diverse, but what was really happening inside those classrooms or, you know, in, on the, in those school hallways was, um, I think to some degree, like a lesser extent of things that my father and his siblings and my grandmother and my great grandmother experienced. Um, so for me, I knew very, very early on that my experience as a black person, as a black woman um, was just very, very different. So for reference, like my grandmother, my dad's mother, if you've seen the movie, The Help, that was the work that she did. Her family members were literally enslaved. So I, I grew up knowing uh, that that all kind of just social injustices happened. Um, and then I also experienced them myself. Um, my undergraduate program is from Western Michigan University. And at that time, we were one of the only universities that offered ABA at that undergraduate kind of level, at least to the in the capacity that it was. Um, so I was learning about ABA and I absolutely hated it. I, I learned it in this very rote way. My brain does not work. My brain kind of works in a more abstract way. So I was like, I don't really get this. I was just, you know, not about it. But I was a psych major and I needed a job after college. And so um, a, a pretty well-known company recruited me. I moved to Indiana um, and I had my first client and I absolutely fell in love with the science, just seeing it actually work, seeing the science be so practical. Um, and again, due to the way that my brain works, I was so easily able to generalize that to just the real, the real world and the real life in my real life. Um, as a RBT, I absolutely experienced racism. I had parents who would Google my name specifically telling my supervisor that they did not want their child working with somebody Black. And I saw 
what was really hurtful, I guess, to me about that is that I saw my supervisors reinforce their be that person's behavior, those people's behavior, by still keeping them as a client, by giving them my first, middle, and last to even have the ability to Google me to see my race. Um, I've worked with all kinds of clients on the RBT and now the BCBA and clinical director level where um, racial slurs um, along with, you know, all other kinds of slurs are challenging behaviors that we are trying to decrease. I've seen parents lie to me and pretend like their child was just born racist and try to absolve themselves of any responsibility that they have in that capacity. Um, so for me, although, um, um, you know, I, my, my nine to five, if you will, is working clinically. My work has always been before I went to college and will always be in activism in specifically helping people to understand the intersectional approach that Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw taught us. We have to be willing to center the most marginalized person in the room within any given context that we're operating in. I always give the example for me. I am a black cisgender feminine presenting lesbian. When I look at my non-feminine presenting lesbian counterparts, or I look at my trans brothers and sisters, there's so many levels of privilege that I hold. And it is my responsibility to leverage that privilege to try to make their lived experience better. And I think oftentimes, it's just easier to kind of absolve ourselves of, of the real responsibility when we say we are allies, the real, like it's not, it's not a fun experience to be an ally because it's a verb. It's literally about making this world a better place, starting with ourselves. Um, so I think at this point in our field, I, I definitely, I think am known for, for hopefully causing good trouble um, because I really have a deep love and a deep just affection for humans and for people's humanity. Um, and I don't want the next practitioners having to go through some of the things that I have experienced as a practitioner. I don't want my clients having to go through a lot of the things that they have to go through as black and brown autistic individuals. Um, and so, yeah, it's, 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 it was literally birthed in me, um, everything that has to do with social justice and DEI. Yeah, just even getting to the point where you have a room of people that are starting to evaluate somebody's lived experience and yes. taking a step back to, instead of assuming that everybody has the same experience and the same views and the same everything, mm -hmm. is taking that extra step to think before acting, think before talking. Um, I, I think that's the, that's the most challenging piece for everybody to get over is that, you know, you don't have to have lived the same life to actually be able to learn from somebody's experience and make the world better in the process. Mm -hmm. But I do have a question on this is that, and, and maybe Danielle, this goes back to you. Um, when we're talking about trauma-informed care, is that just listening to the stories that, that Danielle just, or that Cami just shared, is that, you know, there's historical experience, then there's lived experience, there's layers on layers of underlying factors that change a perspective of how I'm entering into a situation or how somebody else might be perceiving me, is how does one utilize that, understand trauma-assumed care, yet still service patients that are children 
and whose families might be the ones that maybe you don't want to serve in that situation. But the child isn't, like they're not, they're naive to the situation. They're, they're ignorant. They're, they're still learning their way through life at that point. So how do you balance that through a trauma-assumed care model with the staff? And maybe we start with just defining trauma-assumed care. Yeah, so trauma, well, let me, a, a couple things. So in my dissertation process, when I realized that it wasn't just about the individual who's been traumatized, right? I've had to live my life assuming that I didn't fit in this world because of my lived experiences and it just not matching up, right? And so that was kind of an understanding that I've had across my lifetime. When I met the participants in my dissertation, I realized quite like it knocked me on my behind that when I compared their stories with my stories, it looked exactly the same and that they were met with harmful and punishing contingencies time and time and time and again. And so this idea that they were misunderstood, they were misrepresented, they were mislabeled, I could, I could identify with deeply. And so as I'm exploring and hearing these new terms like trauma-informed care, Dr. Hanley's work, I'm like, yes, this is so important. And what my understanding is, is that, you know, as a clinician, we should be responsible for knowing signs of traumatized individuals. We should know um, kind of the treatments that support like, you know, what traumatized individuals have to go through and we should proceed with caution. My understanding also includes, or, or another part of my understanding is that we have to have some sort of information that lets us know that this person, this client, this family has been traumatized. Through the course of my dissertation, I realized like, we're not just talking, I'm not just talking about traumatized individuals. I'm talking about any individual who's had to live and squeeze in the narrow spaces of like marginalized spaces of society, right? So when we talk about marginalized people, I think I, I was a sign language interpreter for 15 years. So I see everything in pictures, that's how I kind of like understand things. And so when I think of marginalized individuals, I think of the people who have had to live in narrow spaces on the margins of society, right? So that includes members of the LGBTQIA2 plus community. That includes neurodivergent individuals. That includes the global majority who were considered minorities, right? Which is just asinine to me when I think about that. And so my idea, and I don't know that I coined this term, but this is what I'm pushing now is like trauma assumption. So how about you not have to feel responsible for giving me information about what you've been through? As a black woman in America, I know that my voice has been erased, that my experiences have been re uh, erased because I'm not coming with quantitative data, right? But in my dissertation, I was like, no, I want qualitative data. I want to hear specifically what your lived experiences are. And now I'm going to document this as data, right? And that's what I'm kind of pushing. I want to hear about your lived experiences, or you don't even have to tell me for me to create a space that's open, that makes you feel safe, right? So the distinction between trauma-informed, as I understand it, and my kind of idea of trauma assumption is just that there doesn't have to be disclosure. 
And you're walking into an environment where you get to say, this is what makes me feel safe. And I take on the responsibility of sharing in your lived experiences. I don't know if that makes sense and I'm happy to kind of, but that's like how I'm conceptualizing the difference between the two. Don't, you don't have to tell me anything if you don't want to, you don't have to out yourself. You don't have to, right? You can, this is a safe space, but you're not just responsible for your own healing. I can take responsibility for that as well. And I find this especially to be useful with black women, right? Like that is critical is when another person can say, Hey, I don't understand what you've been through. I probably imagine it's been a lot. I can assume that you've been through stuff, but how can I, right, support you better in sharing the space and make room for you? That to me is what trauma assumption looks like versus trauma-informed. What's this idea of generalized, literally at the most basic level, generalized empathy, right? Mm -hmm. Like I think when we, anytime we hear of, um, and just a trigger warning, I'm gonna mention um, suicide. Anytime we hear, especially if, if, if we hear of someone passing and it is by suicide, there's always this quote that goes around that's like, be kind, you never know what people are going through. Growing up, we always heard like the golden rule and just all these things and somehow that gets lost on us oftentimes clinically where we have to read a report to be like oh only documented on this report god knows we don't know what's not on that report and of course all the reasons why that things may or may not be documented on this this report it's like somehow clinically we're like okay well we're a scientist and we have to be sure to rule out and it's like only when we see this report do we like are we like oh maybe I shouldn't restrain this kid because they have a history of psychological trauma with restraints. And it's like, well, no, like, why do I have to even have a reason not to do that? You know what I mean? Or why do I have to know Danielle's trauma um, in order for me to treat her with, with again, just like a basic level of respect if, sh if she's my employee or, or whatever, you know, whatever the case may be. And, and I think, I think sometimes as behavior analysts, we, it's so good because we analyze everything and we do it really well. But I think sometimes we make mountains out of mohills. It's really a matter of like, in the most simplistic way, no one should have to tell me anything about them in order for me to treat them in a way that like, I would treat like any, I should treat any human. And, and if I can't kind of conceptualize that, thinking about it, like, how would I want my spouse to be treated out in the street, in the world? How would I want my sibling, my parents, my whoever, you know what I mean? And, and I don't, I don't know. I think I love that we're talking about this. And I also think sometimes if we analyze it almost too much, we kind of go, we get away from like the very simple, like just as we're like kind of conditioned to be like, hi, how are you? We should be conditioned to be like, hi, how are you? And really listen for the answer and really provide a safe space for people to give us the answer. Um, and even if they don't have an answer that we're just okay. human. Yeah, yeah. So just, I mean, I, I guess from broad strokes, it would, it would be, my assumption would be is that if I started with trauma-assumed care is that I'm also starting with compassionate care. Yes. My first thought yes. is that I yeah. need to understand and welcome somebody before I even do anything else yes. first. Yes. Where I'm starting at. 
Yeah. So the, the visual that I have, right, is this idea that like I'm going to use ABA. I, I like I'm going to use this. This is a big fat Sharpie and ABA like creates like this big black solid like box, right, with a thick black Sharpie, right? That's like our processes and our systems and like the expectations that we should have when you like come into this space, right? We can talk about professionalism and the way you look and mm -hmm. all of these things that we want to cram into that box that we've outlined. How about we don't have a box? How about I use a gray washable Crayola, right? And I create, yes, there needs to be some boundaries, but I don't get to decide that, that you can come into this space and you can decide that. And let's just create an area that we're designating as ours. Mm -hmm. I don't get to do that. You don't get to do that. It's ours. We get to define what this looks like together. And it's washable Crayola. So we're not attached to that, that we can just kind of be fluid and move yeah. in this space. That was like the conception of like, my non-public agency loving hands is that literally when I think about my value, I want anyone who sits across from me to feel like they're in loving hands. Right. And that means that I get to like, you can disclose or not. I get to like be malleable and I get to listen and you get to give me feedback and you get to say you were wrong and you hurt me. Right. And I get to say, I'm sorry. And we get to figure out what this space looks like. And I just, I think we're so attached to rules and regulations and boundaries. And when I think about my own lived experiences in this ABA space, I couldn't use behavior analytic um, jargon, right? And, and that was really like, I was penalized for all the things that I wasn't good at and not really being recognized fully for all the gifts that I have to have offer, right? So I was getting this tremendous feedback from the families I was serving, specifically because I was serving black and brown families, like through the roof, like I know I'm a good clinician because of the feedback I received, but then going to work and being penalized because I couldn't understand the graph that like mm -hmm. you expected me to do, right? And there's this mismatch of like, you don't fit in this box. So I'm going to punish this behavior until you and that's harmful. It was harmful for my experience and the way that I am today is a direct result of like those punishing contingencies that I walked into. And I just, I, I believe with my whole heart and soul that like, we've got to get out of this like thick black Sharpie mentality and really move into a space of like, you're, you're an important vital part of this system working. Yeah. Please give me feedback. I think too, to your point of the child, right? Like this, this, this innocence, right? And how sometimes we are associating with clearly conditioned behavior, right? To some degree, I think one of the things that we really have to understand is our privilege as clinicians, right? Like as clinicians, we have the privilege of serving. Like we are, we are supposed to, we are in a human service industry and field, right? So we have, that's a big privilege to uphold. And I don't know if we talk about that enough, especially with the spike of, of, of people and are, are, who are getting certified, that's a big weighted responsibility. So what does that look like if um, a parent 
is engaging in um, racial like discriminatory behavior or homophobic or transphobic behavior. What does that look like? That looks like if if I'm supervising somebody who feels uncomfortable or who doesn't even necessarily, like not even directly because of their intersections, but because they feel like that's wrong. And I'm saying I'm this DEI consultant. That means I need to have a, I need to utilize and leverage my privilege to have a conversation with that parent to establish, am I really the clinician that is for you, especially if the cost of that is not only me having to essentially reinforce this behavior, but also that I have, am I the clinician for you if you really expect me to put my staff in that? Am I really the clinician for you if you expect me to reinforce some of these behaviors that you may be passing on to your child? Um, am I the clinician for you if my company, you know, wherever I work, if, if I'm saying I feel like this is wrong and if we have this non-discrimination um, you know, disclosure thing on all of our stuff and we're engaging in discriminatory practices, you know what I mean? It's really a matter of like, we need to have these conversations um, and we need to, like we can't keep pretending like we don't need to have these conversations um, because all that's doing is just reinforcing the harm. Yeah, and I think that the, oftentimes people do shy away from these challenging yes. conversations, especially in a young field. Yeah. Uh, and not young by age necessarily, but young by, we have very new professionals in our field mm -hmm. that maybe have not been trained. And maybe that's something yeah. we look at with our tra training programs. Do yes. we train them to be able to have those conversations? I wish I had a checklist of everything you just said so we could put that <laughs> out there so that we have everybody coached uh, to be able to start working through that. Um, I do have, um, while we're talking on the, on the client experience, because I, I want to get back to the staff eventually, but on the client experience is that I was just, uh, I was looking at the, the numbers and the prevalence rate with autism and everything like that. And, and then I, all re I read a really interesting article that was saying part of that was the idea that now we are actually able to diagnose better underserved populations. And that, is that, is that an effect of historically these might have been children being labeled with the wrong disorders because of presumptions. And now we're actually a little bit more patient in being able to identify the right characteristics or what's the, where, or is it just access to care? We have more clinicians willing to work or, and able to work in those areas. What's the, where do you, where do you put that? I'll give my opinion. I, I have a feeling Danielle may have a more, um, like, like data probably may back, may back her opinion or her answer. I'll give my opinion, I think, from a historically like DEI kind of perspective. I think we always have to identify who benefits um, the most in these kind of interactions, right? So we work in a field where um, just like any other like human service field where like the insurance industry absolutely, we're kind of bound to the insurance company most of the time. Um, so who benefits from more people getting diagnosed with autism the most? It's probably not the community. Who is doing the diagnosing? It's probably not people that look like them majority of the time. Um, but also, we also have to, I think, kind of acknowledge the fact that while diag like while formal diagnosing absolutely does because we again we're bound to insurance companies um, does provide access to services, we also have to kind of question 
why we only validate formal diagnoses um, as opposed to self-diagnoses or as opposed to informal diagnoses. So to kind of go off on a brief tangent, this is one of the things um, that the TikTok app has been so vital for so many people because when you get enough humans in a room that are able just to talk um, and you start to really kind of have this opportunity to expand your learning, you start to realize like, oh, like hand flapping isn't just for this diagnosis. And maybe my hand flapping doesn't look like this, but it looks like when I'm talking like this and me talking like this historically is associated with like the, blood of, the ghetto black girl. But what if that's actually a stem? Or like, oh, are you telling me that like maybe my baby doesn't have oppositional defiance disorder? Like it really may be autism or whatever, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, it opens up kind of like the, it kind of starts to peel back the onion. And I think it starts to really kind of question again, who is really benefiting on a grander scale? Obviously on a localized scale, if someone has insurance that companies will actually take, because again, companies are bound to insurance because we do live in a capitalistic society and people need to get paid. Um, but, but who's really, really benefiting? I think what you will find is while there may be an increase in formal diagnosing for marginalized communities, which again are the global majority. So we've, we really need to think about that juxtaposition. Um, are, those, are those same individuals actually being served? And if they are, are they being served by people who will not marginalize them even more now that they have this formalized diagnosis? It's a lot. <laughs> I mean, and, and, and to be to be honest, it's like it's layer on layer. Yes. And it feels like, you know, as we start working through the process, hopefully we get better. Mm -hmm. And I, I know that the idea of better is better yeah. isn't oftentimes fast enough, but it's, you know, it's one of those things that as a community of providers, mm -hmm. that's something that we can keep doing. And I think that goes in line with I, what FAB as an organization. And I think what other marginalized communities, the providers um, can start to really challenge everybody else. And they shouldn't be the only ones challenging them. And I will, I'll make that very clear is that we should all be challenging each other. Mm -hmm. But they having those conversations say, hey, you forgot about me here. You forgot about, you didn't talk about my experience here. And keeping that as an open door, I think it broadens conversation. And I think we're all a little bit ignorant at times. I know I am. And I think that the best thing for me is having these conversations to say, okay, what did I miss? What didn't I hear? So, and maybe um, and I'll ask Danielle here is what is BABA? I mean, when did they come about? You, you all have a conference coming up. And I mean, I, I know that it's something that, uh, that we try and, as, as my organization, try and make sure that we're hearing the voices there and bringing them back to our group to be able to share and incorporate. But what does it do for the, the, the Black community? And what does it do for the Black service provider right now? And has it been effective? Yeah. So before I answer that question, I'm going to follow up with um, two, about two things that Cami said that'll lead into my answer about BABA. 
So when we're talking about, um, like she mentioned TikTok, and I think the reason why this TikTok app has been so valuable is because it validates people's lived experiences. So we know that there's an issue with having to get a formal diagnosis to receiving treatment. And right, they, they want data and they want someone who's professional. I'm a clinical psychologist. So even I have an issue when I have to give a diagnosis within an hour of meeting someone, right? Like I'm pushing back every chance I get because I'm like, I don't have enough information, but the insurance company wants a diagnosis so that we can build. There's a huge issue with this. So as we're talking about, you know, black woman voices being erased, right? Like across history, like it's so important that we're sitting in a room. Like I didn't realize how my lived experiences were valid until I met my 10 participants who had grown up with the same conditions that I did. And then me finding Baba and literally everything that came out of my mouth, there was another black woman who validated that, ex that experience. So we're talking about like, again, this kind of like lived experiences as data. It's so vital. And then the other issue I wanna, I wanna um, just briefly talk about is that I, I don't have data. I'm not like, I always say I'm not like collegiate. I'm not, I accidentally went to school. I'm not like fluffy in that area. I'm not analytical. I'm just practical. And I know human, I know heart work, I know human, and that's where my skill set is. So all the other stuff is really hard for me to like articulate. So you'll have to forgive um, that I don't have all of that together. But I want to talk about specifically, I think it's important for specifically, I'm going to talk about black and brown children because this is kind of where I've, I've, I've devoted service of my life to over 25 years. But this idea that black children and like specifically are mislabeled. So you don't know to this day how many times I hear he's bad or he's disruptive or he's or she's right, uh, difficult, combative, difficult to get along with, angry, right? And we're missing out like the lived experiences of the black community. And I wanna make it clear, I'm not here to talk on behalf of every black member of the community. That's not my role. This is my experience and observation and being a behavior analyst over 25 years. This is a direct kind of like way that we, when we're talking about like school to prison pipeline, it starts with a little like four-year-old. Let me give you this example, four-year-old boy who has significant behavioral issues, but because he can't get a formal diagnosis and because he's not receiving the appropriate treatment, teachers are fed up with him. The school district's fed up with him. He's being, you know, expelled out of school. He's being suspended. Um, he's going to alternative schools, right? All of these things are happening and we're not addressing the symptomology. We're not looking at the fact that he has cognitive delays, that he has social disruptions, that he has very specific needs that no one is addressing, right? Mm -hmm. That leads to lack of confidence. That leads to, and I only know this because this was my experience as a traumatized foster student, right? Like I was mislabeled my whole life and no one actually treated my needs, right? So that's why I'm so passionate about this. 
last year I met with an, with a professional who said, I don't know how you made it out alive, right? Like, I don't know because people with your background end up in jail, right? And that started formulating this thought that when we're mislabeled and when we're not paying attention to the needs of the community, to the needs of this individual and not just behavior issues, but their family life, right? And what resources they're lacking and the potential traumatization that their parents have gone through and their parents and generational going all the way back through the times of, of, of our people being enslaved, right? I'm not gonna go off on that tangent, but this is systemic. This is an issue through and through and through. And so when we're not addressing these issues, we are compacting this problem. So I'm gonna say that. Moving into why BABA is so important is from my personal experience, I, was working in this field and met only one other BCBA who was black and we were in direct competition with each other, right? Because there was only one position and only one of us can get it. And we were competing against all the others who were qualified, who were more articulate, who didn't have behavior issues, who didn't present as unprofessional in those meetings, right? When we didn't laugh at the joke that was going around or whatever. And so when I found Baba, I really like was like, oh my gosh, who knew that there was a world, literally a world of black behavior analysts who, I'm not kidding, when I opened my mouth and said, this was my experience, everyone was like, yes, me too, right? And so it wasn't just me thinking that I was incompetent. It wasn't just me thinking that maybe I wasn't qualified enough, that this was discrimination. Like now I see that because my experience has been uh, validated. So the impact that Baba has had is like insurmountable. Like I will never like forget how it felt to finally be in a space where I didn't have to mask, where I didn't have to code switch, where I didn't have to pretend, right? And squeeze in this space that I didn't fit in. What it provides to the community to answer your question uh, specifically, is that peace, is that now that we found each other, watch out like, ABA space because we're not sitting back and allowing right this mis this mistreatment. We're not allowing you to label me. We are starting to talk about these issues specifically related to DEI where they're being embedded in our foundation, not an afterthought, right? Like we are starting to demand that you start to kind of think about what inclusivity looks like, what it does to our parents is it gives them access to representation. It gives them access that when they have their little black, you know, son or daughter who has never had a clinician of color, now they're being motivated to say, no, this is important to us and this is why. So it's creating, I think, more awareness um, about why some of these things are so important. It's really creating a table where we're like, come eat with us, right? We can sit here and we can eat, we can figure out these problems and it gives us a community to kind of do this work that I've been doing for 25 years, that Cami has been doing all of her life. It really is just giving us the space to be able to now openly disseminate what we've been doing for all of our lives. Yeah, and I, I think having that space is extremely valuable. Um, and, and I, I think I would turn to Cami here and, and just ask the, the question as far as how do we make sure that the diversity of ideas that you, that you all have been able to kind of gather and, and support through BABA, 
starts to bleed through to larger organizations and bleeds into the C-level positions within organizations that maybe have a little bit more ability to change strategic directions. Yeah. How, do we, how do we take that piece instead of just building a clinician base? Mm -hmm. How do we build thought leadership around it? You all have obviously done it. It's a smaller minority of thought leaders that have come out of the space of BABA that maybe we need to encourage more opportunities for to yeah. bring out more of that diversity and thought and inclusion. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think I'll be honest, I'm not interested in motivating me. This is Camille speaking. I'm not speaking on behalf of Baba when I say this. So I'll give you Camille's answer and then I'll probably give a more politically correct answer. I'm not interested in motivating people to do this. And, I, and the reason why is because, again, this is work. I think that when people really understand the gravity of, of what it really means to be a diverse, to be an equity-based, um, socially just place, I think the reality is we all have to admit it is not something that we can even fathom. Um, I'm not gonna get political, but literally if we open up a history book, we're talking about recreating something that foundationally um, has, has never been, been has never been on a global level. So that would just be number one. Um, so for me personally, um, I think that there was a time where I, I really was like, oh my God, like I wanna be on this podcast. I want Baba to be a part of this. I wanna do this, blah, blah, blah. And I think what we saw was this performative allyship, right? We as human beings from behavior analytic perspective, we only do things, we are, we are more likely to do things more often that feel good and that are comfortable than not. That's where we get a lot of, especially so socially mediated reinforcement. When we're talking about the kind of systems in place that Baba has created, um, number one, we have to remember that we as black people have been also conditioned to be anti-black. We are talking about the fact that we as people are also conditioned to be homophobic. We're also conditioned to be ableist. We are, we are literally conditioned to hate ourselves and each other. And we had to put in work. Um, thank you to Kat Jackson who created this idea of black applied behavior analyst. We had to do work to figure out that just simply because of this commonality that we have, which is our blackness, we are family, we are a community, and we together collectively are moving collectively. That is so foreign outside of most historically marginalized communities. Literally outside of most marginalized communities, we're taught to be individuals, right? We're taught to pull our own selves up by our own bootstraps, and we are supposed to get ahead on our own one of the, the kind of staples of blackness, um, for sure in America, but I'd, often, I'd even venture to say globally, is this principle of community. I think when we're talking about other organizations or other um, you know, jobs or whoever doing this, it literally means being uncomfortable. It literally means asking your family members about their history. It literally means learning how to feel the feelings but not being stuck in them because it's not about you. It's again about centering the most marginalized person in the context 
of, of whatever the kind of topic that you are having and knowing that that's likely not gonna be you depending on who you're talking about. Um, and that could be hard. My minor in undergrad was gender and women's studies and the quote of, of the year was don't believe everything you think. And it's literally that. Don't believe that when you see that black and white picture of Martin Luther King, don't believe that it was that long ago because knowing that literally when that picture was taken, like colorful print was a thing and that they intentionally doctored it to make it look like it was so long ago so we can feel like we're so far removed from that. Don't believe that your autistic client needs to live in a world um, where they have to mask because that's the only thing that'll keep them safe just because maybe that's what, what a history book in behavior analysis taught us. Don't believe that the people who may be anti-ABA are just on some soapbox um, and they don't have any kind of substance because you know you're a good clinician to your client. Don't believe that you can only call BABA for DEI stuff because maybe not all of us have DEI within our scope of competence. We're literally talking about centering humanity. Um, and I think sometimes people look at BABA and, and again, because June 2020, um, you know, during this global pandemic was kind of this awakening for so many people, including our field at large, they only see BABA as Black people. They don't see the work that we're doing. They don't even know if DEI is within our scope of competence. Yeah, in short, it's really just a matter of like, whatever you want to do, um, you know, choose to start at your most local level, choose to look at your family history, choose to talk to your family, choose to ask the hard questions first within your family. Um, choose if you don't, if you aren't comfortable starting there, choose to look at the, the historical um, history of who our forefathers are in this field, if you want to start there, who the forefathers are in psychology, like really start to kind of look at this history. I think sometimes because we're in human services, we kind of can have this God complex, right? Um, and we can kind of think that just because our intentions are one thing that our impact may be another um, and kind of choose to flip that around. It's all about that impact over that intent. Um, and again, know that this is hard work. And so you, you, your MO has to change from being socially motivated to be reinforced so it really has to be this kind of intrinsic motivation to, again, to really make this world a better place in the most cheesiest of way, like starting with you. Yeah, no, and, and what you had said about uh, reaching out to groups similar to Baba during yeah. the I, you're, you're, you're not the first person who's actually shared that. I was in a conversation, I think it was two weeks ago when I was in Nashville and we were talking about, I think it was Adrian Bradley who said this at a conference once, where uh, where it came up and was like, no, like stop calling me at these times. These are conversations that need to always be occurring and that they should be going and ongoing. And I guess, I mean, it makes it very clear that having that community is an ability to be able to bring about a lot of the discussions, to start to talk about experience, to start to understand and create that collective voice. And then also to have a little bit more power to be able to say, hey, let's start making change. What would you challenge me to do? And, and I guess this is me being vulnerable. I mean, I'm, I'm a white exec, um, male. Um, what is it that you'd be saying? All right, well, Jeff, I'd love it if I saw you start doing some of these things because it would help to empower this communication 
that needs to be ongoing. And this ability to start to have a perspective outside of your life that you understand that there are billions of people out there with lived experiences different than yours. You can't tailor every decision to what you want. Yeah. You know, I saw this interview um, in, in short, what it, it was asking, um, it was asking, it was someone who was not black asking a black person about racism and asking a black person about like blackness and DEI and all this stuff. And one of the things that was so profound in this interview was talking about how, you know, as when you're a victim of something, you, you tend to know as much as you can about your perpetrator, whatever that is, right? Um, not because you want to know about them, not because you're studying them, but you, you just really start to get familiar with the thing that is like punishing you, right? Um, I think my advice to, to you or to anybody is to really kind of do an internal analysis and kind of tact what ways can't, do I literally have the ability to oppress someone? I know mm -hmm. for me, I'll give the example. Again, I am a feminine presenting lesbian. I have um, so many ways to, um, when I think about like my trans brothers and sisters, um, I have the ability to oppress them by voting against their, their human rights. I have the ability to oppress them by demanding that they pass um, it to be like whatever, you know, and to look like quote unquote, whatever gender it is that they're claiming to be. I have the ability to pretend like me calling myself cis is oppressive. <laughs> I have, the, you know, the list goes on, right? Um, when it comes to disability awareness, like I think us as behavior analysts, we know very intimately how our world oppresses our clients. We know that, like we know that so intimately, one, because we're, we're likely um, upholding that, that, that oppression, um, but also because we have the responsibility to kind of be like in, in the VB map or in the ESA or in the ABLES or in the whatever, when I can read that question and, and be like, why is this a thing? Like, why am I asking this? Or whatever the case may be, like, it's, it's, I think it's really a matter of kind of like getting in touch with our own bodies and really sitting with ourselves and really figuring out like, what ways can I really hurt somebody? I always think of this like a marriage. Like, I know my wife so intimately that I know exactly how I could really hurt her and I simply choose not to. I'm not motivated to, um, but that doesn't mean I'm not always motivated to, right? Like if she makes me mad enough, maybe I am motivated to, but there's something about the intimacy of that relationship where I make that choice not to, but first I have to know what that is that I'm like avoiding. Um, so I think for you, when, when you think about your privilege as a white cis, presumably het, and even that is a, it could be offensive, right? I, why am I presuming that you're heterosexual? Um, but kind of thinking about that, like, okay, like, well, as a heterosexual person, as a white person, maybe as a tall person, as a male, as a whatever, what benefits does that kind of grant me? And the best way to think about it is what moments am I thoughtless? What mm -hmm. moment, like when I open up my front door, I don't have to think about the privilege that I have a front door to open that's a privilege because I'm thoughtless, I'm mindless about that. Figure out that mindlessness, um, start to really tap that within yourself. And, and I think that's probably the best place to start. 
I, I do not. I think those are words to live by. Um, so I appreciate you sharing those. Um, and I, I do want to kind of go back just to the trauma component um, one more time. And, and, and Danielle, maybe you can give me a little bit of, of your logic on this, but it feels like within all of the work that's being done to be, better understand um, the client perspective, to bring stakeholders into a compassionate care model, to be able to build a larger um, clinician base that's more diverse and more understanding and brings more perspective, is that oftentimes we go step forward, two steps back, step forward, two steps back. Um, those steps back cannot feel good. I mean, it's, it's got to bring a little bit more of that kind of angst and trauma to the experience if we're not continuing to move it forward on a regular basis, or at least having these discussions about where our blocks are. We're not always going to be successful. So how do we move forward to support our clinical staff through this process? Because it isn't linear. Yeah. Um something that kind of resonated with me was um, a couple weeks ago, I was really upset. I was in the community, I was doing something and I was, I was perseverating. I was in my head and I was really upset about something. And I was um, disengaged from like being presently in the moment of whatever it was I was doing. And I ran into someone and I immediately started to say, oh my gosh, I'm sorry, I didn't see you. And I, I said, oh my gosh, I'm sorry. And as the thought that I didn't see you occurred to me, I, I immediately like had to think, and this is split second, that's, I can't say that to this person. That diminishes that they were here, they were present, right? Like that, right? This is my, this is my commitment to servant like leadership. Like is in that moment, I was deeply uncomfortable. And all I could say was, I'm sorry, I wasn't paying attention, right? So this idea between like trauma-informed care and trauma-assumed care with it, they would have to say, man, I feel like no one sees me, right? For me then to say, oh my gosh, let me think about the words I'm using versus I'm taking on the responsibility to be the person that creates a safe space for you. So I'm not going to say, I didn't see you when it was like, I can say, you know what, I'm sorry, like I wasn't paying attention, right? So that's one example. I also think about when I started in this field under the LOVAS model, we were taught DTT, right? We were taught, like, I don't know if you're familiar with the LOVAS model, but at the time we could slap the table for an incorrect response and we were giving informational no's. And I remember like, in my very first supervision saying something to the effect of like, can't we like soften this up and being taught? No, an informational no is firm, it's direct. And when I thought about how many times I was running a 40 hour a week program, when I think about the number of times that a child hurt, nope, 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 right? And I remember a supervisor even taught me to put PE at the end of nope, nope, so that the voice inflection went up, like that's ingrained in my head, right? And me saying, I don't feel comfortable doing this and me thinking about all the number of times that as a punisher, this child hurt, nope, 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 do it again, nope, right? And DTT, I don't disagree with it, but there's some flexibility that needs to be had in delivering that. So when I think about how we can like show up differently and change the landscape of our field and of this science, I think about things like I am as a servant leader 
taking on the responsibility of moving and being uncomfortable. Cami can attest to this. I am uncomfortable every single day of my life in service of my community. I won't give specific examples, but I am constantly like, I'm uncomfortable. I hate this. Um, and that to me equals growth. I never shy down from an interaction that makes me uncomfortable. If I think that I can learn something through this to be better, to show up better. I'm also uncomfortable, like being vulnerable. People see me and they're like, oh, you're an SD for crying and you allow me to be vulnerable. That's not easy for me. It's still very hard for me to like exercise my voice and talk, right? I'm uncomfortable in this space, in my body at this very moment, but I'm committed to servant leadership and kind of sharing that like, I don't know everything and I have a lot to learn. I remember one of the first conversations I had with Cami, I was like, I don't know. And I realized I'm engaging in a lot of anti-black, you know, behavior based on the way I grew up and I gave her that context. And so I said, like, I need you to check me, right? Not that you're responsible for that, but as we were forming our friendship and our, you know, kind of interactions with each other, I asked her, like, hold me accountable. And I don't just do that with her. I do that with everyone. If I, if I misstep, tell me I'm uncomfortable getting feedback, right? But I'm committed to servant leadership. And that to me equals growth. And so I think as we're generalizing how I understand being uncomfortable to look like, that's what my challenge would be is like, if you're uncomfortable, don't shy away from that. We all kind of have this tendency to like, oh, that's not for me. Let me like back out of here. And I'm like, no, interrogate that. Interrogate what's coming up for you. Interrogate really like self-reflection. Dr. Nasia Serencioni Ulizi is always talking about this. She actually tapped what I had been doing my entire career. I'm so thankful for her words that I never had. I had emotions and I had processes when we were slapping the table and I was like, I'm not gonna do that, right? And I was standing firm. Um, I didn't know how to articulate that. She gave me words, right? Just constantly being uncomfortable. Every time I had to like say, I'm not doing this or this doesn't feel good. And I was written up for insubordination because like as an example, I worked with an Indian family who doesn't use utensils to eat. And I remember sitting there with my supervisor and she's trying to like put in a, a, a utensils program. And I'm like 20 something years old, don't have the vocabulary, don't have the wherewithal about what DEI is, but saying they don't even use utensils. Like, why are we teaching this program? And immediately going back to the office and getting written up for insubordination, right? So like, as uncomfortable as it was, I wasn't backing down, right? And so as I think about those experiences and as I think about what we're talking about and why it's so important, I think we have to move into a space of being uncomfortable. And every time that nudge comes, interrogate that. Every time it comes up, say, okay, let's get to the root of this and let me really analyze what factors in this environment are bringing up this feeling and how can I lean into creating a better space. I totally appreciate that thought process. I think that embracing the discomfort is probably something we all need to do because that's the, the time where we probably should be asking more questions and start to be a little bit more aware and maybe trying to understand something a little bit better. And then it's just the essential. it's essential. It's absolutely essential for our growth. 
Absolutely. And I mean, I, and I laugh uh, because uh, I went through the same thing. I thought I was going to completely fail out of behavior analytics because I could not get the informational note correct after one hour. There was something wrong with my intonation or there was something wrong with the way I was doing it. I was like, I'm done with this. <laughs> but uh, now, so where can people get some of these resources? I think that um, oftentimes is that people want to learn. They want to, and this doesn't come natural to everybody. It is work. Um, I mean, it is something that it's a growing process. So where can people start to get the resources or start to reach out to get better understanding and coaching on how to be able to develop some of these skill sets? Um, so I know on babainfo.org, um, there's a ton of resources on the BABA website. Um, we offer monthly CEUs. Um, obviously, the BABA conference is coming up here um, in a little bit where I believe there's 41 or 42 presentations. And obviously, not, it's not just going to be on DEI, but there's just so many growth opportunities. Um, I highly encourage people um, to look outside of the field of behavior analysis as well in that behavior analysis is very slow uh, to, pick, to pick this up. Um, so looking at people like Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw, reading books like Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? Um, and again, and, and Danielle, I, I'm sure you'll have more resources, but I cannot stress this enough. The primary resource I encourage anyone to, whether no matter what your intersection is, is to talk to your family members. This feels so uncomfortable. Um, if, if you're anything like me, so I really have to kind of um, intellectualize a lot of things first, um, sometimes to really help me kind of like get the gravity sometimes of things. When I talk to my parents, when I talk to their parents, um, when I, when I really get their anecdotal data of their lived experience and I really start to understand why they are how they are, I start to understand why I am the way that I am. Um, and then I can generalize that concept to my peers and to my clients and you know to just humans at large. Um, so aside from tangible resources like the ones I just gave or even the ones that Danielle is about to give, I don't think people realize just how important it is to really figure out where you came from to really understand what got you to this point right now. It is not all about the Cooper book. It's not all about Hanley. It's not all about relational frame. It's not all, like, I, I think really sometimes again, cause we're talking about human connections that we forget that like where we, we've all been conditioned to be the way that we are. Um, Danielle, do you have other resources too? So you, I don't know how popular this answer is going to be, but along the same lines, um, thank you for providing tangible resources because I have none. I always say that the first place to start, I call it heart work, um, is with yourself. Really interrogating like who you are, what your values are, how you want to show up, any mismatch in that information. I think finding out where you come from, right? Like I'm big, I talk all the time about generational traumas. Like 
what is the history? What is the mind frame, right? Like I grew up with a mom who was anti-black. She had three black babies by three different men. She was very, very, very traumatized by, by black men, right? And I share that because I grew up with a mom who tried to deny me of who I knew I was before I could talk, right? When I looked in the mirror and, and I talk about this experience all the time because it really shaped like how I felt about myself, right? And so I had to get to the root, to the heart work of really what then stopped me from engaging in a meaningful way with the community that I loved, right? And, and barriers that came up and working through those barriers. And so I say as a clinical psychologist, go sit down somewhere, go get therapy, go figure out like what the heart work is. Um, and then outside of that, before the, because before you can do anything, you've got to know who you are and what you're bringing to the table, how you're impacting your environment. You don't understand how many times I am watching people impact their environment and the harm that they're causing. And they are completely unaware of the chaos that it's it, I, it, like the visualization I have is like the Tasmanian devil. Like I'm watching this and I'm like, you have no idea how you're affecting that person. You have no idea how you're contributing to like trauma and, and harm. Right. And so I it just, it's so important that you've got to get like, sit with yourself, go sit down in a corner, get quiet, sit with yourself. Beyond that, once you're kind of through that cycle, you've got to the hard work, you're committed to protecting right? No matter what, I think I wrote that in the chat earlier. And you're reaching out for resources, reach out to the communities, right? Like, don't go to, I don't know how to say this in a more articulate way. So forgive me. So don't go, like, I use this as an example, the, the white fragility book, right? It was written by a white author, right? Like, don't, don't do that. Like go to people who are embedded in that culture to learn about that culture, right? To learn how you can show up better, to learn how you can do it better. Like go to that source and just, I say, and, and Cammie might have a different agreement, just go in with vulnerability. I really want to learn and understand and pay and pay and pay and pay and pay and pay. Don't sit across from yes. someone and say, teach me, educate me. I need to learn this so I can be better. Really like pay someone to come into your organizations or pay yes. someone to sit down and talk with your family, pay someone because recognize that that's labor and recognize that that is work. Us being yes. here is work, right? Us talking about our lived experiences and us being so passionate about that is work. So making that recommend, you know, making that, uh, recognizing that yes. and not contributing to the, you know, to harming further. Yeah. No, and I appreciate, I mean, I think that A, that's great advice. B, all the resources that you were able to also provide, Kim. I think that these are, these are things that people need to start looking at. But looking at yourself first, I think is important. I, I always go back to, I think the biggest time period of me growing up was my, my three years that I did over in the Peace Corps because I was stuck in a community where guess what? I needed to figure out how to be able to understand the perspectives or else I wasn't gonna be alone. And the last thing I ever wanted during that three year period was to be alone. So mm -hmm. you, you learn to say, okay, I'm gonna learn everything about everybody around me to create a community. And I think that 
that perspective, I think, bleeds into different lifestyle choices that I've had. But I, I, I think that that still can be created and I still need to work on it myself too. So, but thank you both for coming in and, and chatting with us on the podcast today. I hope that these, con these conversations continue every time we meet up because I yeah. think that I learned a lot again. So I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. It's been a wonderful discussion. Thanks for having us. And thanks for, I, I don't know if you were uncomfortable, but thanks for, for, for sitting in the space and, and, yeah. and taking the opportunity to, to learn and listen. Yes. Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS Kids. ABS Kids is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS Kids and the Autism Weekly podcast by visiting abskids.com. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week. Thank you.